I see the NCA basically saying, let's let's stop the season and, and figure out the rules first, and then we'll go on, tr- trying to get a little bit of leverage. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Wednesday, January 10th. Today, I'm joined by Eric Gardner to discuss the possibility of college athletes unionizing as NIL payments and the transfer portal are making it easier for NCAA athletes to cash in. That sounds nice, but it could also lead to something unprecedented in college sports, the cancellation of football and basketball seasons as athletes, schools, conferences, and the NCAA litigate the future of college athletics in the courts. And later, Teddy Schleifer joins Ben to discuss the power players behind the RFK Jr. campaign money machine. We'll discuss all that and much, much more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Happy Wednesday, everybody. Welcome to The Powers That Be. I'm joined today by Eric Gardner to talk about the NCAA, everyone's favorite punching bag, and how recent changes to paying players, the transfer portal, all of these things could lead to an apocalypse for college sports, at least in the short term. Eric, thanks for joining me. You made a prediction this week in your newsletter that the NCAA could suspend college football and college basketball seasons pending a round of collective bargaining. Now, I assume this means next season. Because the college football season is over, college basketball is still underway, of course. How do we get from here to there where the seasons would just be suspended? This would be unprecedented. I'm thinking of all the sort of lockouts in professional sports, but for college, this hasn't happened before, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's definitely a few steps that would need to happen. But let me just take it back to the fact that, you know, there's mayhem going on right now in college sports. I mean, a few years ago, the NCAA was, you know, sticking by this uh, notion of amateurism. Uh, it It was like their sacred pull. And they insisted that, you know, college athletes couldn't be paid. That would ruin college sports. It went all the way up to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court unanimously said that the the restrictions were illegal, that they were antitrust violations. So in the wake of that, there's been all these loosening rules. These athletes are signing endorsement deals. There's new class actions that that have come against the NCAA, its schools and, and divisions, seeking a big piece of the trillions that these schools get for TV uh, broadcasting, not just today, but, you know, for past sins as well. 
and the leagues are you know struggling to figure out what to do. Uh, there's 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 so much turmoil that the that the conferences are collapsing. A conference like PAC, you know, the PAC twelve is like on its last legs. Schools like Florida State are are suing other schools. Uh, you know, it's clear that there needs to be something that happens, and so that's where I set the stage for what might happen. And one of the things that, that I point out in my article is that there are a couple of petitions uh, before the, the National Labor Relations Board seeking union recognition, one at Dartmouth and one at USC. And uh, the NLRB right now is stacked with a Biden appointees, very pro-union. So there's a lot of reason to think that the NLRB will grant these petitions. Now, the que- next question is what happens thereafter? Does the NCAA spend, you know, a half decade in court fi- contesting the classification that these athletes are employees? Uh, that could happen. They could go all the way up to the Supreme Court. They could lobby, mm-hmm. you know, lawmakers to make a change. But, you know, I have a, a different suggestion um, and something that I think is indeed possible that they embrace the unions and f- for one simple reason. Anything that's collectively bargained gets a pass from antitrust uh, scrutiny. Mm-hmm. So basically, in the need to make new restrictions and to kind of like curb the excesses of pay for play that we see now, they might go to these unions and say, hey, you know, we'll recognize it you, but let's like work out a system together. Uh, let's figure out what the, the rules should be. And once that happens... It'll be basically a settlement for all the litigation that's involved, uh, and they could have rules that would, you know, survive legal challenge. Um, now, the final portion of my prediction is the suspension of the college football and basketball seasons. <laughs> and you, you, you mentioned, you know, professional teams locking out players on, uh, upon the expiration of their own collective bargaining agreements. Well, that's why I see here. I see the NCA basically saying, let's let's stop the season and, and figure out the rules first, and then we'll go on, tr- trying to get a little bit of leverage. So that's basically where I see things headed. A complexifier here, to use the John Kelly word, is the transfer portal. Um, I know we're all talking in hypotheticals here, but I think some 2,000 college football players enter the transfer portal uh, for 2020. For the movement, it aggravates me. You know, I just maybe I'm a traditionalist. It'd be nice if you could stay at least two years rather than just team hop like Bo Nix. Shame on you, Bo Nix. But if some sort of deal with college athletes was collectively bargained and, you know, say you're at USC uh, and you play football there uh, or hell, you're Bronny James and you play basketball at USC, (laughs) he probably wouldn't want to be part of the collective bargaining agreement, uh, given the amount of money he's likely to make and could make uh, LeBron James son, by the way. Would players be like locked into staying at their schools under this scenario? Well, it, that would be part of the discussion. I mean, one of the problems right now is it used to be, let's take the transfer portal as an example. It used to be you transferred, but you had to wait wait a year before you had eligibility to play for a different school. That's kind of collapsed right now. That restriction, you know, is being seen as, you know, a potential antitrust violation. So now, so now you know, you enter the portal and it's possible that you can play the next week for the opposing side that you're scheduled to play against. Now, the NCAA has tried to, you know, uh, come up with rules for this, but they're, they're on shaking ground. Uh, I, you know, I, I just think that everyone getting together uh, and, and, and figuring out the rules is, is probably what needs to be done. And yeah, it will, it will guide 
Bronny James and, and, and everyone else, star athletes. And if, if they don't like the system, then, you know, they could become pros or, or something like, along those lines. Um, but, uh, you know, at, at least still give them kind of guidance about what's possible. Mm-hmm. So you wrote that the, the union petitions are coming from USC athletes and Dartmouth mm-hmm. basketball players that known college basketball powerhouse, Dartmouth up in Hanover. What do these petitions say and, you know, what complications would there be? Like, what's the pushback? I assume, you know, the conferences aren't hyped about this, but are, are the schools individually opposed to these petitions as well? Well, the petitions basically like say that these athletes are are employees that they have you know expectations about when they when they work they they have to prioritize basically their athletic achievements over their academic achievements and you know basically uh, they're they're posing they 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 should at least be getting minimum wage they should they they should have some you know expectations about about hours and and, and all that and and be under the rubric of of traditional employees now there's certainly complications with that for for you know for one thing um you know some states don't allow public employees to to unionize and you know some of these schools are are you know public universities so if they're employees of, of a public school that could violate state laws the, the the you know the end run around that is by saying that you know maybe they're not the employees of the the school but they're rather the employees of of the conference the other there are you know tax implications to that you know if they're deemed employees and being paid wages uh, that means you know the IRS is going to be interested in it uh, it might you know some of these schools are, are tax exempt. Um, so, so that that there could be ramifications there. Some of the athletes are, are foreign-born, so there might be immigration laws that are impacted. Uh, you know, it is a really, really complicated situation. I'm sure it's going to create so many headaches in the in the years ahead. Eric, thank you so much, buddy. My pleasure. When we come back. Teddy Schleifer is here to talk about RFK Junior's money. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is here to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 15% better on average compared to other other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash odyssey podcast all lowercase go to shopify.com slash odyssey podcast now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash odyssey podcast hey i'm brett podolsky 
co-founder of The Farmer's Dog. We make fresh food for dogs. We started the company when we saw what a huge difference it made in my own dog, Jada, when she stopped eating ultra-processed kibble and started eating fresh, whole food. The Farmer's Dog food isn't fancy. It's just real food delivered to your door in pre-portioned packs. It's better for them and easier for you. Get 50% off your first box at thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. That's thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Ben Landy here with Teddy Schleifer on uh, what we sometimes informally call the B Block, but it's no less special. (laughs) Teddy, thanks for being here. Sure thing. All right. So you pitched a story last week that you had started reporting um, that we just published yesterday about the pretty significant fundraising and political operation around Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who's raising tens of millions of dollars from a maybe surprisingly big money crowd, a lot of tech people. I wanted to ask you, how much money are we talking about here? Who is he getting the money from? And, and, and what is the money for as he pushes forward with this campaign? Sure. So um, Robert F. Kennedy has a super PAC called American Values that has raised upwards of $30 million over over this uh, election cycle, which is not a small amount of money. I mean, that, that, I believe that would be more money ra- than raised than the super PACs of people like Chris Christie or, you know, other kind of mainstream uh, people running for the highest office in the land. And he's also, over the last couple of, of weeks, really, tried to stand up a kind of a traditional bundling operation around him. Uh, we report in our story that Kennedy recently started a National Finance Committee. He has a finance director who comes from like the Democratic bundling world, someone who worked for Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden, fundraising for him before. He is getting uh, outreach from kind of mega donors uh, from both parties. Um, part of the reason I wanted to do this story was I had someone reach out to me uh, a couple weeks ago who uh, is you know, an advisor to one of the richest people in the world who was like, how do I get in touch with Robert F. Kennedy? Which I think tells us something that there is a uh, effort afoot to try to stand up kind of a traditional big money operation around this guy. And um, it matters, Ben, more so, frankly, than kind of other candidates or other you know people who have ballot lines uh, on the November uh, in the November presidential race because Robert F. Kennedy needs a lot of money to even be in the conversation uh, about you know how he might affect the election because he's currently not on the ballot as an independent candidate. Um, he is on, I think, now one ballot in the state of Utah. Uh, and that costs money to qualify for all these ballots. It's extraordinarily complicated logistically. Um, so he's out there trying to raise, you know, 15, 20 million bucks to uh, take this donor money and make him an actual candidate in, in November. Okay, I, I have so many thoughts about this. <laughs> First of all, wait, so the, the, the PAC wants to be on, there's like at least seven states that they're targeting. These are the big states Correct. with a lot of electoral votes, New York, California. But Teddy, the, the thing that's really wild to me about the Kennedy campaign is that it seems like it is deliberately a type of spoiler campaign, not in the sense that he's secretly trying to elect Donald Trump, although I'm sure there's a number of his supporters who wouldn't mind that as an outcome, but that the super PAC has been pretty clear that they are hoping to trigger what's called a contingent election, where no candidate reaches 270 electoral votes, and then the election goes to state congressional delegates who then pick the president. I don't know if that's actually a, a good way to get Kennedy elected as opposed to Donald Trump. But it does definitely illustrate that this campaign could be a much bigger headache for Biden or for Trump than I think the national media has really been giving this campaign credit for. I mean, they, they have a plan, they have a strategy, uh, and they're moving forward with it in a way that 
that is very intentional and very strategic. Sure. I mean, look, the, the, the uh, November is a long way away. You know, people love to tell pollsters are interested in third party candidates and then not actually vote for them. But this, you know, this is a, a different third party candidate. This is a guy, you know, comes from, you know, America's most one of America's most famous families and, you know, already has extraordinarily high name ID. It, it seems like his support in November will be more driven by like ballot access issues than by kind of questions about, you know, is this the right guy, you know, to be the president of the United States? I mean, you know, if he's getting 10 or 15% in polls, like, he's going to be a huge story. I mean, there's going to be, how will the Trump campaign deal with him? How will the Biden campaign deal with him? Um, You know, I know right now there are Democrats um, in kind of the pro-Biden world who are watching this ballot signature effort and, you know, very nervously trying to make sure that, you know, he doesn't qualify for, for too many states slates in November. So like, I, I agree that the, there is a, uh, there's a real public interest uh, in reporting on, a, you know, a seemingly fringe candidate. I mean, this is a guy who's not going to be next president of the United States, obviously, you know, spoiler campaign or, or contingency election uh, plan be damned, but he's clearly going to influence the race. And I think like, you know, news outlets probably will have RFK beat reporters and all these things that typically are luxuries, not typically afforded to kind of third party candidates. But even if he gets like seven or 8%, he's going to be a big story to say nothing of kind of what he represents more symbolically about the American political culture and the electorate. Yeah, well, let's definitely talk about that. Because the other thing that struck me in your reporting is that so much of the money behind Kennedy is it's anti-vax money. Just, just pure and simple. And that, that surprised mm-hmm. me a tiny bit only because I feel like that a lot of the rhetoric about Kennedy, at least from like a lot of his tech and Silicon Valley supporters like David Sachs, is that he's the anti-war candidate, that he's anti-imperialism, that he's going to, that he wants to push to end the conflicts in Israel and Ukraine. When you look at who's actually working for him on these PACs, on the campaign, who's raising money, who his allies are, they are like almost entirely anti-vaccine cranks from top to bottom. Uh, which I guess just goes to show that it's it's a larger and more powerful segment of the American public than um, than I would have hoped. Certainly, it's a niche, right? And and like you know, there's um, the, you know, the, the, even if there are one percent of Americans or two percent or point oh one percent, Robert F. Kennedy is their guy. You know, like he is their 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 warlord, and 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 uh, you know, he is ex- certainly extraordinarily well networked in that community. And yes, if you look at kind of the RFK fundraising tour that he is launching beginning of this year he's doing i think like you know 15 or 20 events over the next couple of months lots of the people are you know you, you throw them into google and i haven't heard of most of these people but you know they're the head of you know americans against autism or you know whatever kind of euphemistic organization name they have you know for instance this past weekend robert f kennedy was in oregon outside of portland you know he did an event with a guy named jb hanley who's a you know a quote-unquote anti-autism uh, activist who is, you know, a big believer in, you know, or skeptic of vaccines. And, you know, he had lots of people at his event who came from that community. To some extent, I, 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 what, what this community believes or doesn't believe, like, I think there's power in from a fundraising perspective, just in, in, in niche communities. Um, so, you know, if you are, are the, the node that connects a wide range of people, and, you know, I do think that some people who are anti-vax are also pretty wealthy. RFK is a dream come true, and you'll give him thirty three hundred bucks, no problem. Yeah, Teddy, no, uh, no vaccine passport required for the whale watching trip fundraiser in uh, <laughs> in Oahu. <laughs> yes, that's, that's one of one of the events. 
All right, uh, Teddy, before I let you go, I, I also wanted to get your thoughts quickly on uh, the New York Times suing OpenAI for copyright infringement, in part because I've had a hired gun from the Times who's been sort of breathing down my neck about some corrections to one of her episodes with uh, Eric Gardner the other week on the podcast. So hmm. for the record, before we get into it, <laughs> the Times filed this lawsuit a few days after Christmas, not a few days before. That's my bad. And second, Eric was making this point that um, that actually to, to induce ChatGPT to spit out verbatim New York Times stories, kind of pulling them from behind the paywall, which is a big piece of the Times lawsuit, you have to prompt the bot pretty aggressively. Like you kind of have to say like, give me the first paragraph of Snowfall. Okay, now give me the second paragraph of Snowfall. And it'll kind of go along with you until it spits out the whole thing. But in the example from the lawsuit, the Times did not include the actual URL from the stories, as Eric said, was necessary. That was sort of a um, typo in the way it was displayed in the lawsuit. You don't have to actually do that. So <laughs> two corrections. Um, you're welcome. <laughs> but, but Teddy, with all that out of the way, I, I'm curious what you make of this suit, because you've gotten to know Sam Altman a little bit, and he seems like not a private guy per se, but definitely a politically risk-averse guy in some ways. Mm -hmm. And this seems like a very high-profile case for him to be involved in, and definitely politically charged, too, on some level. Do you have a sense of like how the Altman-verse might be conceiving of this case, whether they just want it to go away, whether you think they're going to settle, or are they trying to make some sort of broader point in fighting this thing on behalf of the AI community? Sure. I mean, obviously, you're, you're this is the definition of a fight with someone who, you know, buys ink by the barrel. I mean, I mean, Sam, Sam has been, look, Sam is a public figure, but, you know, actually over the holidays, I, there was this kind of thread that he was doing on Twitter, you know, and there was, there was one tweet of his, which I, I faved because I thought it was interesting. You know, he said, quote, I'm slowly making peace with being a public figure, which can be painful. I assume it will get much more intense as our systems become much more powerful. And that's okay. Look, I mean, like now, yes, he's been a Silicon Valley celebrity ever since, you know, Paul Graham chose him to be the uh, kind of heir to the uh, PG throne. Um, and and uh, he, he certainly is, is certainly uh, much, much, much more of a public figure now than he was even two or three years ago or, you know, six or seven years ago when I first got to know him. But uh, he, he this is obviously a PR loser, right? It's it symbolically, you know, I'm sure OpenAI has, has their... Uh, you know, believes in, 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 in the value of kind of their side of the lawsuit. But from a public relations perspective, like the, the fact you're fighting against the New York Times in court um, is not where they want to be. Sam, uh, as you can tell by that tweet, is, is, has always thought about PR, but I think he is realizing that as he gets more powerful, as OpenAI gets more powerful, that like sometimes you got to think about the PR cost of your actions a bit more. And, and certainly maybe they played a role in kind of why why he was ousted from OpenAI during that brief brief weekend of November 2023 is you know he's paying very uh, careful eye to the optics right now this is pretty awful optics so they'll have to judge that against legal precedent blah 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 I'm not a lawyer but um, the PR war is something that Sam clearly as as we enter 2024 is is thinking about a bit more intentionally and uh, not off to a good start by fighting the newspaper of record. Yeah, I mean, it's, to be honest, I don't even have a sense of how the optics are playing with the public. I don't know if there's been any kind of 
polling on this. Like on the one hand, you know, you and I are obviously surrounded by other people in the media who are aghast that um, OpenAI is just crawling the web, sucking up the New York Times, ripping it off uh, as this giant proprietary training set where the Times is not being compensated at all. I mean, I think you and I and everyone else in this industry looks around and realizes that our intellectual property it can, it can just be absconded with, with very little recourse right now. I mean, there's no sort of legal framework for how this stuff is going to shake out yet. On the other hand, you know, the Times is not that popular. I mean, the, the media in general <laughs> is unpopular with people. So I don't know. I mean, maybe there's a greater group of people out there who are, who are willing to take Sam Altman's side on this, you know, just out of, you know, kind of underlying hostility to the media industry. But Teddy, I also have to imagine that that Sam's got to be a little bit wary of future regulations too. I mean, even if the public supports him on this, um, and and maybe they do, I have to imagine that a Democratic-controlled House or Senate in the future is not going to look too kindly on OpenAI just sort of trampling over the free press. Totally. Like I mean, I mean, Sam's you know spends more time in in D.C. than you know your average tech CEO, and and. Uh, he he knows which way the political winds are blowing, and uh, you know his, his Dean Phillips uh, escapade aside, he, he's usually uh, pretty on the money about where he should spend his time politically. Well, I'll tell you, I don't want to speak for Puck, but um, we are open to offers. Sam, if you want to send us a royalty check to crawl all of the um, Powers That Be podcast for information to feed OpenAI, ChatGPT, we are more than willing. I'll send you my address. Sure. <laughs> uh, so, 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 suddenly the word defenestrate appears in, uh, in every <laughs> right. OpenAI right. uh, prompt. Who would have thought it? Teddy, thanks so much for your time. I'll see you. You bet. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Ben Landy. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Odyssey. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Bob Tabador, and Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck.